you can tell him, continue with sort of the same arrangement that we had been looking at the last couple of weeks, and that is, uh, again, we're not going verse by verse through a text, but instead focusing in on key Christian attitudes, uh, key Christian disciplines that we should be working on in our life if we want to follow Christ. Uh, the, a couple weeks ago, we looked at cultivating a disciplined use of our tongue. Last week, we looked at cultivating a discipline of persevering in the face of trials. And this morning, what I want to take a look at is uh, cultivating a discipline or an attitude of being an effective gospel witness. I remember a time shortly after I came to know the Lord, uh, when I was going, uh, I had just finished my first winter camp with our with the church's youth group after becoming a believer, and it was my first shift back at Publix. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned an incident that occurred at Publix, and this sort of ties in it, but this is more of a positive one as opposed to that one being a more negative experience. Uh, I had returned to work after that time off, and I what I noticed over uh, from that point forward was a change in the conversations that I had with my coworkers. I took a job at Publix when I was 15, and my experience with my coworkers then was much different than it is now. I was a 15-year-old. They were 15 years old. We shared similar life experiences, similar struggles, trying to study for tests and make it through you know, learning to drive and all of those fun things. And now I'm just like the old guy who tells them not to lose money. Okay. But I had all kinds of what I would call friendships of circumstances. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been forced into a situation with other people, you sort of develop these friendships of circumstances, people that you could stand there and make comments with or hold conversations with, uh, be very friendly with. Uh, and I had a number of these. Okay. However, Things started to change for me after I returned from that winter camp. The topics of my conversations began to change. You see, the very first night I was there, I was put on one of our express lanes with one of our other cashiers. And it was a slower night, so I jumped off my register to bag for her. Uh, and we began to discuss uh, just normal shooting the breeze type stuff. She was telling me about a car accident she had had in which she was very disappointed in the reaction of the driver uh, that was in the incident with her. And over the course of this conversation, and she was explaining his rude behavior and how she didn't understand how he could be so mean in this situation, we be, uh, the, the conversation gradually shifted toward um, things of the gospel. Hey, how are people so rude? How are people mean? Well, it's a result of sin. And as we began talking, the topic of eternal destiny came up. And she expressed some interest, and we talked about it for a little bit, and I tried as best as I could as a quivering 16-year-old who was just introduced to the concept not that long ago. Uh, 
and the conversation moved on from there. But that, however, was the first of many experiences I had from that point forward. I had had sparring matches with self-proclaimed atheists uh, at my job in our off time, not in front of the customers. We don't do that. Okay, I spent time one around one Easter explaining the significance of the Passover lamb to a group of cashiers that I was leveling down the Passover section with. And as these conversations unfolded, I noticed really three things. Okay? One was, I noticed that my friendships changed. Okay? I wasn't asked to go out and participate in activities uh, of a certain nature that I had been asked to participate in before. Number two, I noticed that people would begin to ask me more about Jesus. There were some who, although uh, there were some who were hostile toward it, but others wanted to know more. And the third thing I noticed is of those people, those conversations are some of the tools God used to bring them to the Lord. Giving a witness for Jesus is one of the most important things that we can do. Our interactions carry weight once we make an association with the Lord in front of other people. They will see how we live. They will watch how we speak. And from those, they will draw conclusions about how important we think Jesus is. There is an expression that we are the only Bible that some people will read. We give a witness before people, in some cases, that have never read the Bible. Being a witness is not an exclusive thing to the believer. This goes, if we look back at the Old Testament law, we can see Israel was given many commands inside of there so that they would be a witness to the surrounding nations of who God is, his holiness, that they were set apart from the wickedness of the nations around them. And we see that that carries on from Israel to the believer. That we are to be prepared to be a witness, to give a witness. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Speaking to wives, Peter tells believing wives in 1 Peter chapter 3 that in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The Bible even contains warning to those who would be poor witnesses. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read the, the we begin to see the aftermath of David's great sin with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him in verse 14, However, because you have done this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 
David's, David's actions, his poor witness, it's an understatement there, had disastrous effects on how the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, viewed him. David was known as a man after God's own heart, and, yes, he, he, and yet he committed great and terrible sin. How many times have we turned on the news to see that some evangelical leader, I'm going to put evangelical in quotes, has quote-unquote fallen from grace because of some sin, shipwrecked their ministry. The world is watching all those who claim the name of Christ and are looking for evidence that their actions and their words line up with the testimony that they claim. Now, a poor witness carries with it poor consequences, but a good witness before a unbelieving world can have a profound impact. And now I'm not speaking in the sense of street evangelism, eh? or in the in the case of of going out and uh, doing visitations or or door to door knocking. All of those things are are good and have their place, but what I am speaking about is personal relationships, personal interactions, living life with people and allowing what I hope is our good witness have an effect on people. The conversations I had with my coworkers, and still have, had one just the other day, and you could pray for a gentleman by the name of Sean, that would be great that I still have were born out of natural conversations we would we would leave we could leave a situation with with a with a with a a rude customer and answer the question why are people like this because people are depraved well what does that mean well let me tell you maybe we're not forced uh, conversations now not everyone is gifted to be an official evangelist not everyone in this room can be like Mike Schott or the Apostle Paul who goes out and that's what you do. But every one of us in this room has the opportunity to have a witness within the spheres that we find ourselves. Now, a quick side note to that is that presupposes that we have interactions with people that are unbelievers. There are groups of people that would say that that would be wrong. That as believers, we should retreat from the world. We should not interact with them. And that's just wrong. That is wrong. God did not and does not command complete separation from the world. As a matter of fact, we're told the opposite. We're to be a light in the world. To be salt in the world. We are to live in the world, but not be of the world. Jesus himself showed this in his own life. He routinely met with sinners, much to the dismay of the Jewish religious leaders. Now, with that being said, I do want to note there is a danger in going too far the other direction. There was a news story several years ago that I still can't believe is a real thing, but it is. There is an individual, there was a whole article about him, who want it was a it was a female lady who wanted to to save people out of the adult industry 
And so to do that, she was saying she was becoming an adult entertainer for Jesus. We cannot be effective witnesses for Christ by committing sin. It doesn't happen. It doesn't even make sense. I knew someone going into the psychiatric field who told me that they didn't feel like they could effectively help people struggling with addictions if they themselves didn't partake in some of these illicit substances. That doesn't work. Neither does participating in sin. You, we, we cannot gain, and when I say gain, I don't mean like earn, okay, God's favor. We, we, we don't invoke a positive reaction from the Lord by being disobedient to him. As a matter of fact, he told us he'll discipline us for stepping outside of the bounds of what is appropriate. Not in a punitive sense, but in a re restoration sense. So, in thinking about and evaluating what we need to develop in order to come to uh, cultivating this, this discipline, this attitude of being a gospel witness, what I want to do is I want to take a few moments, by a few moments I mean the majority of our time this morning, and look at a character who we see in the gospels who portrays this very well. And the character that we're going to look at this morning is that of the Apostle Andrew, the brother of Peter. Okay. Andrew's name is often associated with witnesses, or witnessing, rather. He's a unique figure in the Gospel. See, he was present at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 40, we see, it says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It is because of this interaction, this first meeting of Jesus, that Andrew has been given the title, the Protokaletas, or the first called Although even though he had this honor of being the first of the twelve to, to begin to interact with Jesus, we see that did not have this at the kind of effect that we think it would. Andrew did not gain the same notoriety his brother Peter would. He was not included in the inner circle of James, John, and Peter. He missed out on moments like the transfiguration, the healing of Jairus' daughter, the final moments of Gethsemane. He's not been shown in the Gospels to have been an effective leader of the Twelve. We don't see a moment where Andrew steps up the way his brother does to lead the others. 
We have no recorded sermons that he taught. We don't see an account of him performing miracles that we're aware of. He didn't author any of the books of the New Testament. He didn't possess the same kind of boldness his brother Peter possessed. But one quality Andrew did have was he is known for bringing others to Christ. And this endeared him to the church. The church historian Eusebius in his ecclesiastical, that's the word, history, alleges that Andrew made his all the way, that he went all the way to Scythia, which is just north of the Black Sea in Russia, that he carried his witness there. It is also claimed that he went and witnessed in Greece, where he was allegedly martyred there by hanging on an X-shaped cross, spending what some claim to be three days praising God. Andrew is now the patron saint of Greece and of sore throats. Okay, if you're Catholic, or you're not Catholic if you're here, but if you know any Catholics and they say, I don't, I don't want to come to your church, I want to be Catholic, you say, okay, if you get a sore throat, say hi to Andrew for me. But he's not a real saint. Don't pray to him. Just a fun fact. And in Andrew's legacy, it is alleged that he, and this, okay, I am, I went to school as a history major, so I can tell you that this is not true. But it is alleged that he made his way all the way to Scotland in the Middle Ages. Okay, let me explain that. It is according to the, to the Scots that they were led into battle one day by a white X-shaped cross levitating above them in the blue sky. What? Well, this is if you ever wonder where Scotland got its flag from, that's this. That's the white St. Andrew's cross on a sky blue standard. All because Andrew led them into battle in the Middle Ages. In a cloud. Now, there is no firm record that we can we can point to and say Andrew made his way all the way to Russia or made his way to Greece. And I'm telling you right now, he did not go to the Middle Ages in Scotland. But where does this come from? Where does where did Eusebius and, and other church leaders gain this, uh, gain this idea of who Andrew is? Well, it is from the accounts that we read about him in Scripture. Andrew was an average Joe who loved to present others to Jesus. Okay, we'll take a look at that in just a moment. Hey, what I want to do is take a look at different aspects of the heart of Andrew that we should develop in our own lives. And the first is a knowledgeable heart. Andrew possessed a knowledgeable heart. He possessed a heart that was full of knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And not just head knowledge, but love for him. A kind of knowledge that is only present in the believer, that motivates us to go and to teach and to show others who Jesus is. He reacted to coming to face-to-face -face with the Messiah in such a way that he needed to let other people know. Andrew had a profound knowledge of Christ. We, he met him personally. We, we, we see this from John chapter 1. He, he was a disciple of John the Baptist who, upon hearing John confirm that this man was the Messiah, got up and left. 
John, John, Andrew, see, he's so forgettable I even forgot his name. Andrew, in all that he had learned about the coming Messiah, knew enough that when he was presented, he went out to him. We see, we look back at verses 39 and 40, we see that Andrew spent an entire day with Jesus, and no doubt this had profound impact on him. He'd spent, again, time in service with John, awaiting and preaching the coming of this Messiah. And now that he sees him, he only wants to be with him. John's reaction to this new knowledge of Jesus, this personal, intimate experience, that he, is that he wanted everyone to know who he was. And we're going to see exactly what he does upon leaving Jesus in just a moment. See, coming to know Jesus, and when I say no, I don't mean educationally, I mean when you experience the love of Jesus and we come to faith in him, there is a joy that is uns un we, we could not have imagined. George Whitfield, in recording in his diary his reaction to coming to know Christ, wrote, Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full and big with glory, my soul was filled. Surely it was the day of mine espousals, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. At first my joys were like the spring tide and overflowed. Coming to know Jesus changes us forever. It changes our priorities. It changes our wants, our desires. And in the case of Andrew, it changed and it changed him. He, 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 he was not just filled with his joy. He wanted others to know about it. And we see this right here, John 1.41. And he just spends the whole day with Jesus. The very next verse we read, And he found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. One commentator noting that unlike the caricatures of Christ, the Christ of the scriptures is so winsome, so radically different, so utterly unlike the stereotypes that when he is truly seen, he draws even the most resistant to himself. Andrew, upon coming to know Christ, runs immediately to share his new experience with others. He runs and he finds his brother. Peter, we have found him. I found him. Come and see. And we know what the end result of that is. Peter comes to know. People are going to be resistant to Christ. That is part of the curse. That is part of the effects on humanity. We are dead in our sins. We want nothing to do with, with, with God. But when, keep, when people come face to face with Christ, in a real and intimate way, when he arrests our hearts, it is like two magnets with opposing charges. They cannot move away. They will come together. Now, there is a great theological truth in that. Now, sometimes we think that if we say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, that we've messed it up. Now, salvation just isn't going to happen for that person. But that's not the case. We're not in charge of our even our own salvation, let alone somebody else's. 
When Jesus, in eternity past, wrote down the list of all those who would come to know him, it was as good as done. No, no amount of kicking or resisting could, could change that. Look at the Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and said, Paul, what are you doing? Stop kicking against the goads and knock it off. You're one of my children. Now go preach the gospel. This is the kind of witness that Andrew had. He ran out to share with other people, which highlights, first of all, a heart that is full of knowledge was number one. I Sometimes I get caught up in what I'm saying. Number two, he had a heart that was magnetized by Christ. The third is a selfless heart. Commenting on the Apostle Andrew, John MacArthur states, He is one of those rare people who's willing to take second place. One of those rare people who wants to be in support. Or one of those rare people who doesn't mind being hidden as long as the work is being done. He is the kind of man that all leaders depend on. He is the kind of person that everyone who is, who is known as the backbone of every ministry. The cause of Christ is dependent, beloved, on self-forgetting souls who are content to occupy a small sphere and an obscure place, free from self-seeking ambition, and yet he will sit on the throne judging the tribes of Israel. Okay, we look back at John 1, verses 40 and 42 now. It says that one of the two that heard John speak and followed was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. And he found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Did you notice something in the way that that, that passage read? Well, how about this? Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. And the names of the twelve apostles are the first Simon, who was called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or Luke chapter 6. Simon, who was also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. John chapter 6, verse 8. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. What do we see there? Yeah. When you notice Andrew, or, or, or note Andrew, the common reaction is, who? Oh, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. When I started this morning, that's what I called him. We're going to look at Andrew, Peter's brother. Peter needed no introduction. When Peter is mentioned, everyone knows exactly who this is. But when Andrew, this is not the case. The people naturally drew to Peter. He made a permanent impression. Didn't say always a good impression. A permanent impression. Okay, while Andrew fades into the background, like the color beige, Andrew could be there. Maybe he's not. We don't know. He, where is he? Oh, he's somewhere else, not in the limelight. Now, one commentator noting that Andrew, in bringing Peter to Christ, knew that there would be only one seat for him after introducing the two, the back seat. And there are people who go through 
ministry, seeking only the high positions, seeking only to be up front, seeking only to be visible to people, wanting the glory of the ministry for themselves. They would only participate in an activity if they can themselves can be the leader. They want to be the ones being the recognition. But this is not the case with Andrew. He didn't care about being a leader. He didn't care about imposing his will on the twelve. He wanted, wanted his brother to know Jesus. This ambition did not deter Andrew, and it should not deter us as well. We should not enter a ministry with the mindset of being the one in charge and being the one up front, of being the one that everyone knows. Hey, I read that, that description of Andrew from John MacArthur, and it fits very well. He was content to work in the background and let Jesus handle everything. That should be us too. Everyone wants to be up front, but that's not how things get done. You know, if a, a survey taken amongst orchestra owners, do you know what the hardest position in an orchestra to fill is? Second violin. Second violin. Nobody wants to play second violin. Absolutely. Yeah, they want to be first violin. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure with that. No. <laughs> we should not seek the high position, but instead focus on the work that needs to be done. We focus on sharing Jesus and let God sort out that kind of stuff. We don't this this is not about us. We like to mix in our own ambition, but the reality of of it is ministry and our lives are about God, not us and what we attain. Andrew also possessed an optimistic heart. We look at John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, we see, And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? And he was saying this to them as a test, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for anyone to receive a little. Now one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here with that has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Here we see a familiar story. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, it's Passover time. There are lots of people who have come to see Jesus, and Jesus would like to feed them. Now, he asks his disciples, how do we fix this problem? We got, we got so many people, we got no food. I want to feed them. We're going to feed them. What are we going to do? Jesus wasn't asking them because he didn't know. The text tells us, tells us clearly he was testing his disciples, testing their faith. He knew where they were at, but they needed to see where they were at. 
And Philip remarks the 200 denarii worth of bread would not, it would go nowhere. However, Andrew offers up a suggestion. He tells Jesus about a boy in his lunch. Where Philip responded with extreme pessimism, and to put perspective into what Philip was saying here, 200 denarii would be the equivalent pay for a man who worked for six straight days over the course of 38 weeks. Okay, Philip was saying eight months of wages would not be sufficient to feed this crowd. Andrew, as one commentator put it, was a bit more helpful. He made a positive presentation of the boy's lunch. Now, we do see Andrew begin to waver at the end of his request. It's sort of like a family quality uh, to make great expressions of faith and then begin to doubt. What does that sound like? It's Brother Peter. But we must have the mindset, as Andrew did, that God can do anything if we want to have an effective witness. Our attitude makes all the difference in bringing people to Christ. The belief in the sufficiency of Christ fueled, fueled the great works of Wesley and Whitfield. We cannot come at the idea of witnessing to an unbelieving world with the mindset of, this probably isn't going to work. That shifts the focus right back on us. Our job, again, is not to convince anyone of the gospel. It is to present the gospel, to be the witness. All the while understanding God can do the unimaginable. He can save people that we couldn't fathom, that we would look at and go, they're too far gone. But if we behave in such a manner to understand that God is sovereign and, and can work in the hearts of any man, we should allow that to influence our witness. We're not responsible for their response. But we come at it from the perspective of God can do anything. And we give him glory if he does. And if he doesn't, we still give him glory. And this has to happen to broad peoples, okay? last element of Andrew's heart here is an expansive heart. He allowed that, that kind of optimism, that kind of, of witness to extend to all people. You know, sometimes we will have conversations with people that we like. You know, people are rude to us, mean to us. You know what? I'm not going to share the gospel with them. They were mean. We don't get along. So you know what? Forget them. When we truly understand what a wicked statement that is. I'm not going to share the gospel with them. I'd rather they spend an eternity in hell. This is not a quality we see in Andrew. John chapter 12, verses 20 and 22. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee. And began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and he told Andrew. And Andrew took Philip and came and told Jesus. And we have an account here. Jesus is teaching and a group of 
Gentile Greeks come to Philip, one of the disciples. They see one of his disciples. They want to talk to Jesus. They want to meet this man. And they come to Philip and they ask him, hey, we'd like to speak to him. Can, can you help us out here? What's Philip do? He went and told Andrew. Andrew's not Jesus. What did Andrew do? He went and got Jesus. Hey there. I don't even understand. Like, how does that equate? Like, why would you go and get Andrew? Without hesitation, Andrew took the request of these Greek men to Jesus. Now, we don't see Jesus accepting the invitation for these Greek to meet with them. But we do see Jesus makes a particular statement here. In verse 26 of John 12, he says, If anyone serves him, they must follow him. In his commentary on John chapter 12 here, MacArthur tells us that Jesus spoke not of Jew nor of Greek, but of anyone. An odd thing to declare to just the disciples. It was the coming of these Greek Gentiles that triggered Jesus to make this claim. We need to understand that the gospel message is for all. For all people. Not just the ones we like. And not for the people we don't like. There is a, especially in New Testament times, a great resentment toward Gentile people by Jewish, by the Jewish people. And we see Jesus having to come to Peter and to tell him that it is okay to go to Cornelius' house. And we see how the Samaritans are brought into the church later in the book of Acts. And so these Greek, these Greek persons come to Philip. Philip doesn't know what to do with this. Jesus had told them when he sent them out that their job was to teach to the house of Israel. What do I do with these with these with these Gentiles who want to know who Jesus is? Well, Andrew's answer is simply this: Go get Jesus. Andrew was an average guy. I've heard him referred to as average Andrew. He didn't possess the vast intellect of the Apostle Paul or the fantastic education of Dr. Luke, nor did he possess the magnetic personality of his brother Peter. He was just a guy, a fisherman, who wanted others to know Jesus. Hey, we know this because the only time we see Andrew mentioned, aside from a list of the twelve of the disciples, he is bringing people to Jesus. We don't read about the time that Andrew went off uh, somewhere else. We read Andrew taking the Greeks to Jesus. We read him bringing Peter to Jesus. In a study of over 8,000 churches, two, uh, uh, the question was asked, you know, what brought them to the church? And these surveys varied by churches, and I'm, so I'm just going to give some vague numbers, but about 2 to 3% of people asked at some given churches said they, they just walked in. You know, they were walking by the church, wanted to know what was happening in there, so they went in. 5 to 6% came because of a particular teacher, someone that they knew, someone that they was visiting, and they wanted to hear this person teach. 
1 to 2% of people came because of a visitation effort. And half of a percent in the surveys noted that they came because of some kind of evangelistic crusade. But in some cases in these surveys, 90% of the people polled came because of the influences and the witness of their friends and or families. Sometimes we get in the mindset that to share the gospel means to stand on the street corner. It's not the case. The real evangelism begins when you form relationships with people. Again, I'm not saying street evangelism is bad. But there's more. There has to be more. You can't just, you, you leave someone hanging. You bring them in. Bring them to church. You build a relationship. Okay? And the, the best thing about that is all of us can do that. All of us can. We don't have to go out okay, on the weekends. We don't have to knock on doors. We can interact with people that we come into contact with and share that gospel with them out of the relationship we have with them. This is the Jesus. This is Jesus' approach. He went out and he he interacted with people. He built relationships with sinners. He dined with them. And that's more than just, you know, grabbing a 15-minute meal at McDonald's. Back then, that was an hours-long occasion where he sat with them, interacted with them, taught them. It is not that other evangelistic techniques are bad or ineffective. You know, the word of God is being preached and God is sovereign. But surveys show... When you ask other people, you see that when you in, or I invest in other people and show them in our day-to-day -day life who Jesus is, that has the biggest impact. God has placed us in particular families, in particular vocations, in particular neighborhoods, all for a reason. We don't live where we live by some kind of social accident. Well, it was the only house that was available. We live there because God put us there. These are not social accidents. These are divine appointments. We need to cultivate a discipline of becoming a faithful gospel witness to show the people in all the areas of our lives the immense value of Christ. Because that's the most important thing that there is. Do you do that? Do you have those conversations? Yeah, because yeah, we have to interact with people. Hey, it is, it's not a case of just, you know, behaving well around other people. It involves more than that. Unbelievers can be friendly with other people. Do your words and your actions show Jesus? It's more than, again, just being kind. And I do want to note, we have to talk to people. And we can't just do nice things for people. We have to talk to people. Okay? We can't forget 
I mentioned a few weeks ago, the method God prescribed to proclaim the gospel is human speech. Hey, there's a the phrase, phrase floating around there, you know. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It's nonsense. Jesus said, go out in the world proclaiming the gospel. Okay, we have to speak to people. Okay. That's how we form bonds, by the way. We are a communicative, a communicative bunch. So I encourage you, form those kind of relationships in your own life. We can do that wherever we are. Wherever we are, where we live, where we shop, where we... If we're walking in the mall, having a conversation with someone. Use those opportunities to be an effective gospel witness. Don't let ambition stop us. Don't let selfishness stop us. Don't let the fact that some people are unkind stop us. Be someone who cares about other people enough to tell them that they have a problem, but there is a solution. Share Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good to us and so kind. You interact with us so many levels through your word, Lord. You've reached down throughout history, preserved your word, preserved you witness so that we could come to know you lord i pray that we would develop the kind of attitudes that the apostle andrew had to show others you lord i pray that we would that would be the desire of our hearts that the people that we come into contact with would know you i pray that we would be bold in what we say it's uncomfortable sometimes, Lord, but I pray that you would give us words to speak. I pray that you give us inroads into the lives of other people so that we could take them to you. Lord, I pray as we transition now to the main service that you would again open our hearts to hear your word taught. That you would convict us in areas we need conviction. That you would stretch us and grow us pray that we would leave here today with a deeper understanding and knowledge of you that we can use to witness to other people, Lord. Lord I want to bring again the request mentioned this morning to you. We know that everything, every situation that we have is, is set up by you to be a witness. So for George, who is in the midst of dealing with these medical situations, I pray, since he knows you, Lord, that he would use this opportunity to share the gospel with doctors and nurses, other patients, his family members. I pray for those here who, who have unbelieving family members, myself included, that, that, we, that we would witness to them daily, understanding that you can save even the, what appears to be the most hardened of sinners. And I pray, Lord, at the end of the day that you get the glory for all of it. Not any of it should come to us, Lord. It is an act and a power 
It is only done through you. You save your people. We're just mouthpieces for your word, Lord. Bless everyone here. And that we have a good rest of our day, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you.